Part First, Chapter Two of *The Well Beloved* by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part First, Chapter Two: The Incarnation is Assumed to Be True. It was difficult to meet her again, even though on this lump of rock the difficulty lay, as a rule, rather in avoidance than in meeting. But Avis had been transformed into a very different kind of young woman by the self-consciousness engendered of her impulsive greeting, and, notwithstanding their near neighbourhood, he could not encounter her, try as he would. No sooner did he appear an inch beyond his father's door than she was to earth like a fox. She bolted upstairs to her room. Anxious to soothe her after his unintentional slight, he could not stand these evasions long. The manners of the isle were primitive and straightforward, even among the well-to-do, and, Noting her disappearance one day, he followed her into the house and onward to the foot of the stairs. Avis, he called. Yes, Mr. Pearson. Why do you run upstairs like that? Oh, only because I wanted to come up for something. Well, if you've got it, can't you come down again? No, I can't very well. Come, dear Avis, that's what you are, you know. There was no response. "'Well, if you won't, you won't,' he continued. "'I don't want to bother you.' And Pearston went away. He was stopping to look at the old-fashioned flowers under the garden walls when he heard a voice behind him. "'Mr. Pearson, I wasn't angry with you. When you were gone I thought you might mistake me, and I felt I could do no less than come and assure you of my friendship still.' Turning, he saw the blushing Avis immediately behind him. "'You are a good, dear girl,' said he, and seizing her hand to set upon her cheek the kind of kiss that should have been the response to hers on the day of his coming. "'Darling Avis, forgive me for the slight that day. Say you do. Come now, and then I'll say to you what I have never said to any other woman, living or dead. Will you have me as your husband?' "'Ah! Mother says I am only one of many.' "'You are not, dear. You knew me when I was young, and others didn't.' Somehow or other, her objections were got over, and though she did not give an immediate assent, she agreed to meet him later in the afternoon, when she walked with him to the southern point of the island called the Beal, or by strangers, the Bill, pausing over the treacherous cavern known as Cave Hole, into which the sea roared and splashed now, as it had done when they visited it together as children. To steady herself while looking in, he offered her his arm, and she took it, for the first time as a woman, for the hundredth time as his companion. They rambled on to the lighthouse, where they would have lingered longer if Asvis had not suddenly remembered an engagement to recite poetry from a platform that very evening in the street of Wells, the village commanding the entrance to the island, the village that has now advanced to be a town. "'Recite?' said he. "'Who'd have thought anybody or anything could recite down here except the reciter we hear away there, the never-speechless sea?' "'Oh, but we are quite intellectual now, in the winter particularly. "'But, Jocelyn, don't come to the recitation, will you? "'It would spoil my performance if you were there, "'and I want to be as good as the rest.' "'I won't, if you really wish me not to. "'But I shall meet you at the door and bring you home.' "'Yes,' she said, looking up into his face. "'Avis was perfectly happy now. "'She could never have believed on that mortifying day of his coming "'that you would be so happy with him.' When they reached the east side of the aisle, they parted, 
that she might be soon enough to take her place on the platform. Pearson went home, and after dark, when it was about the hour for accompanying her back, he went along the middle road northward to the street of Wells. He was full of misgiving. He had known Avis Carrow so well of old that his feeling for her now was rather comradeship than love, and what he had said to her in a moment of impulse that morning rather appalled him in its consequences. Not that any of the more sophisticated and accomplished women who had attracted him successively would be likely to rise inconveniently between them, for he had quite disabused his mind of the assumption that the idol of his fancy was an integral part of the personality in which it had sojourned for such a long or a short while. To his well-beloved he had always been faithful, but she had had many embodiments. Each individuality known as Lucy, Jane, Flora, Evangeline, or what not, had been merely a transient condition of her. He did not recognise this as an excuse or as a defence, but as a fact, simply. Essentially she was perhaps of no tangible substance, a spirit, a dream, a frenzy, a conception, an aroma, an epitomised sex, a light of the eye, a parting of the lips. God only knew what she really was. Pearson did not. She was indescribable. Never much considering that she was a subjective phenomenon, vivified by the weird influences of his descent and birthplace, the discovery of her ghostliness, of her independence of physical laws and failings, had occasionally given him a sense of fear. He never knew where she next would be, whither she would lead him, having herself instant access to all ranks and classes, to every abode of men. Sometimes at night he dreamt that she was the wile-weaving daughter of high Zeus, in person, bent on tormenting him for his sins against her beauty in his art, the implacable Aphrodite herself indeed. He knew that he loved the masquerading creature wherever he found her, whether with blue eyes, black eyes, or brown, whether presenting herself as tall, fragile, or plump. She was never in two places at once, but hitherto she had never been in one place long. By making this clear to his mind some time before to-day, he had escaped a good deal of ugly self-reproach. It was simply that she who always attracted him, and led him whither she would as by a silken thread, had not remained the occupant of the same fleshly tabernacle in her career so far. Whether she would ultimately settle down to one, he could not say. Had he felt that she was becoming manifest in Avis, he would have tried to believe that this was the terminal spot of her migrations, and have been content to abide by his words. But did he see the well-beloved in Avis at all? The question was somewhat disturbing. He had reached the brow of the hill, and descended towards the village, where in the long, straight Roman street he soon found the lighted hall. The performance was not yet over, and, by going round to the side of the building, and standing on a mound, he could see the interior as far down as the platform level. Avis's turn, or second turn, came on almost immediately. Her pretty embarrassment on facing the audience rather won him away from his doubts. She was, in truth, what is called a nice girl, attractive, certainly, but above all things nice, one of the class with whom the risks of matrimony approximate most nearly to zero. Her intelligent eyes, her broad forehead, her thoughtful carriage, ensured one thing, that of all the girls he had known, he had never met one with more charming and solid qualities than Avis Carrow's. 
This was not a mere conjecture. He had known her long and thoroughly, her every mood and temper. A heavy wagon passing without drowned her small, soft voice for him, but the audience were pleased, and she blushed at their applause. He now took his station at the door, and when the people had done pouring out, he found her within, awaiting him. They climbed homeward slowly by the old road, Pearson dragging himself up the steep by the wayside handrail, and pulling Avis after him upon his arm. At the top they turned and stood still. To the left of them the sky was streaked like a fan with the lighthouse rays, and under their front, at periods of a quarter of a minute, there rose a deep, hollow stroke like the single beat of a drum, the intervals being filled with a long-drawn rattling, as of bones between huge canine jaws. It came from the vast concave of Dead Man's Bay, rising and falling against the pebble dyke. The evening and night winds here were, to Pearston's mind, charged with a something that did not burden them elsewhere. They brought it up from that sinister bay to the west, whose movement she and he were hearing now. It was a presence, an imaginary shape or essence from the human multitude lying below. Those who had gone down in vessels of war, East Indiamen, barges, brigs, and ships of the Armada, select people, common and debased, whose interests and hopes had been as wide asunder as the poles, but who had rolled each other to oneness on that restless seabed. They could almost be felt the brush of their huge composite ghost as it ran a shapeless figure over the isle, shrieking for some good god who would disunite it again. The twain wandered a long way that night amid these influences, so far as to the old Hope churchyard, which lay in a ravine formed by a landslip ages ago. The church had slipped down with the rest of the cliff, and had long been a ruin. It seemed to say that in this last local stronghold of the pagan divinities, where pagan customs lingered yet, Christianity had established itself precariously at best. In that solemn spot, Pearson kissed her. The kiss was by no means on Avis's initiative this time. Her former demonstrativeness seemed to have increased her present reserve. That day was the beginning of a pleasant month, passed mainly in each other's society. He found that she could not only recite poetry at intellectual gatherings, but play the piano fairly, and sing to her own accompaniment. He observed that every aim of those who had brought her up had been to get her away mentally as far as possible from her natural and individual life as an inhabitant of a peculiar island, to make her an exact copy of tens of thousands of other people, in whose circumstances there was nothing special, distinctive, or picturesque, to teach her to forget all the experiences of her ancestors, to drown the local ballads by songs purchased at the Budmouth fashionable music-sellers, and the local vocabulary by a governess tongue of no country at all. She lived in a house that would have been the fortune of an artist, and learnt to draw London suburban villas from printed copies. Avis had seen all this before he pointed it out, but, with a girl's tractability, had acquiesced. By constitution she was local to the bone, but she could not escape the tendency of the age. The time for Jocelyn's departure drew near, and she looked forward to it sadly, but serenely, their engagement being now a settled thing. 
Pearson thought of the native custom on such occasions, which had prevailed in his and her family for centuries, both being of the old stock of the isle. The influx of Kimberlins, or foreigners, as strangers from the mainland of Wessex were called, had led in a large measure to its discontinuance. But underneath the veneer of Avis's education, many an old-fashioned idea lay slumbering, and he wondered if, in her natural melancholy at his leaving, she regretted the changing manners which made unpopular the formal ratification of a betrothal, according to the precedent of their sires and grandsires. End of Part First, Chapter Two